This is WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on Lumpen Radio. Hey, we're having some technical difficulties. Uh, it sounds like it's coming from a cave. Producer Jamie uh, is working on it, but I think you guys can hear my voice. Um, it's so confusing. It's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, we'll have to do without our fantastic show intro, but this is, of course, Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and uh, we're here uh, on a beautiful, beautiful summer day in Bridgeport, Chicago, um, and we've got a good show lined up. Uh, we'll be talking about Bridgeport's relatively new uh, Eleanor Street Boathouse project by Studio Gang Architects. We've got the project architect, William Emick, here in the studio with us, um, as well as Owen Lloyd, neighborhood fixture, um, who sits on the uh, Park Advisory Council for uh, uh, the, uh, I don't know, very dryly named Park 571. <laughs> so we'll be chatting with those guys um, for the first uh, uh, 45 minutes, an hour or so of the show. Um, then uh, in the second half of the show, we'll be chatting with the folks from Outpost Office um, about a very cool project where uh, Piranesi meets ASCII. Uh, if you don't know what either of those things are, uh, all will be explained in due time. Um, but they're, they're very cool, cool cats um, and excited to chat with them. And then, of course, it's our ever-popular segment, The Mailbag, where we answer your listener questions about architecture. Uh, there's still time to get those in, folks. Uh, just send them to at Buildings on Air on Twitter, B-L-D-G-S on Air, um, and we will do our best to answer those. And that's with Anne Louie and Craig Reschke of Future Firm. So that being said, uh, William, Owen, welcome to the show. How's it going? It's great to be here. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, you know, I, I realized that, um, you know, in the 18 hours of audio <laughs> that we've recorded for Buildings on Air, um, we haven't really spent an extended amount of time talking about, like, one building. Um, we talk about architecture in a very general sense or, you know, sort of home repairs more generally in the mailbag. Um, so this is a kind of cool thing to really get into the building and, and the process and how it gets used. Um, and yeah, and it's very, very local, uh, a very local project, which is great, you know, for, for our uh, community radio station here. Um, so yeah, I, and just to kind of kick off the conversation, I think, uh, to my mind, um, one of the most interesting things about Chicago is like how central the parks are to our sort of civic identity, like going all the way back to, you know, the Burnham City Plan. Um, and it's like I think an interesting effect of that is, that, you know, regardless of what you think about the mayors, um, you know, Park park district land and programming the parks and, and improving the parks is always a priority. It's just like air. It's like what you do. So, you know, for, for any critique I might have of Rahm Emanuel or his predecessors, and, and there are lots, uh, I think uh, credit where credit's due, uh, the city's shown like a, a, an eagerness to um, work with community groups and, and put lots of time into improving parks kind of all over the city. And, and so... Um, you know, there's more that can be done always, but I think the Eleanor Street Boathouse is a really good example of um, what's possible. And I think a big part of that is down to having like uh, a nice, thoughtful building that can kind of give the park um, like an inflection, I, I guess is maybe a good word. Um, so, uh, William, 
you're the you were the project architect. Is that is that right? Uh, yep. Great. Yep, yep. Along with a couple of other people that joined the team as well. So I, I'm not going to take full <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, <laughs> there's obviously Jeannie as well, who is the, the yeah. brain behind it all. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, can you just maybe for our listeners who are outside of the neighborhood or not in Chicago, um, just kind of explain the project. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us tell us what the boathouse is, mm-hmm. broad strokes, um, what's the deal? Well, broad, <laughs> <what's> the deal? <laughs> broad strokes, it's really, it's, it, it, it is what it is. It's a boathouse. Um, it, uh, it's really a community boathouse that uh, is, is uh, sort of a, um, a community center, a boathouse, sort of a recreational sort of destination. Um, it's uh, split up into two sort of separate buildings, one being a filled house. That's, uh, that's really where more of the uh, indoor training happens, uh, where you can have community events. Um, kids can come there and gather there after school and do after school events. Um, and then you have a sort of larger building that's housing all of the boats for the teams. Um, and it's really just to, uh, it's a building to sort of showcase yeah. how you can get out on the river. Right. And these are r- rowing teams from? Uh, St. Ignatius, uh, U of C, uh, there's CTC, and then there's uh, Row, which is uh, Recovery on Water. Cool. Yeah. And, and um, it also sits at a, uh, a kind of very interesting moment in uh, Chicago's waterways. <laughs> um, it's where Bubbly Creek uh, yeah. meets the river. Um, Bubbly Creek for, for well, oh, and you, you know something about Bubbly Creek. <laughs> Maybe you can explain it for uh, 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 those who might not be in the know. Technically, Bubbly Creek was filled in in the early 1900s, so it's the South Branch, which is now started to be called Bubbly Creek, and it still bubbles from all the organic material which is rotting at the bottom of it. You can go to the bridge on 35th, look down. If the water's calm, you can see it bubbling kind of like a cola, slowly going flat, except for it's taken over 100 years to go flat. (laughs) Uh, It's also, so it's where the South Branch reaches the main branch, where the West Branch used to reach before that was filled in. Uh, The I&M Canal was dug there in the early 1800s which this portion has been filled in and now the sanitary and ship canal uh, goes all the way down to the Illinois River. So it's this great confluence uh, which gave birth to the city of Chicago because it's the portage. It's how people would get from the Great Lakes to the Mississippi via the Illinois River uh, across Mud Lake. And it was back in the 1500s where French explorers were like, a canal right here can make a great civilization. And that's what happened. Yeah. Yes, and of course, it's the the namesake of our uh, bridge port, right? Yes, portage, yes. Port, the portage around the bridge. Yeah. Also important to note that they reverse the river so that we can send. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so yes, we so can send our awful down to St. Louis. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, it, and I and I guess that's a question because uh, I know um, Studio Gang's done a kind of a lot of work thinking about Chicago's waterways, mm-hmm. and I know uh, th- there's the kind of book uh, Reverse Effect where the proposal was to you know re-reverse the river, right? Um, so I, I'm wondering if if uh, well I don't know if you, if you worked on that personally or not, but I'm uh, I, I worked on little parts. Yeah, of that. I didn't uh, I didn't have a hand in most of the the work there. It was Jeannie with uh, NRDC on that. that yeah, uh, what is NRDC? Uh, National Res- Resource Defense Council. Gotcha. <laughs> okay, cool. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but uh, like I'm I'm curious what impact that sort of had on on the project. If if it even if it was like you know helpful for you, you guys to kind of claim an expertise on the rivers um well it had it had a lot of impact on on what we were thinking you know it's it's sort of the first step or one of the first moves that uh that we we highlight in in reverse effect which is really to get people access uh, to the to the river so um that's sort of the first step in it all is to get access and then to clean the waterway system and then you know 
this idea of building a barrier to um, to stop the invasive carp mm. coming in, and then also to eventually re-reverse the river back and uh, um, sort of recreate or rebuild the uh, the original watershed. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's interesting. It makes sense, you know. I was so I was at the project a few days ago, and and there was a lot of people. Um, you know, running around, lots of kid, kids doing summer programs. This is great. And uh, so, yeah, and, you know, you sit there and you kind of look across the river and you get to see the boats passing and everything else, and you're like, wow, like, I, I can't believe this was in my backyard the whole time. And yeah. so it, I think it does have that that sort of a bigger picture effect of making people um, – think about natural resources. Yeah, and CTC was actually rowing out of there for quite some time. And then, you know, it was great that the, the mayor and the US EPA decided to really have a plan of action to get people on the river. And, you know, just this is something that came about. It's one of four, by the way, that sort of connects the North Branch to the South Branch to really get people out there. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, so, um, Owen, you're on the Park Advisory Council for Correct. Park 571. Yes. Um, and I, I'm curious, like, what your experience has been, like, having – was the park there, like, before the boathouse? Like, I was, was always very curious about it because I go across the street is Canal Origins Park and across Ashland from there is Canal Riverwalk Park. Uh-huh. I like both those parks a lot. On my days off when I'm running errands, I'll stop and I'll just sort of hang out and I'd see this just – plot of grass with a fence around it with some boats and I didn't know what was going on and out of I found out on the map because I'll go and look at maps a fair amount of the area that it was Park 571 but it was fenced off for some reason but there were rowing teams there and I didn't know what was going on I had no idea they were going to be building the boathouse at that point mm. and then uh, a couple years ago before they started construction the fences came down and so we were able to sit on this patch of grass and people started fishing and it was great. It was because you can get down to the riverfront, and the river's not accessible in most of Chicago. You can't yeah. easily get to the edge of it. And then um, I think it was shortly after that, a few months after that, the fences went back up and construction had begun. And it's like, oh, there's something going on here. And the now president of the Park Advisory Council visited the bike shop saying, hey, I want to start a Park Advisory Council. Can I put a flyer out? And me being like a river geek, like history-wise and everything, I'm like, whoa, Boathouse Park Advisory Council, count me in. I like those parks. <laughs> and so we started meetings at the East Bank building before the boathouse was complete just to organize the Park Advisory Council, get the word out to the, the neighborhood and see if anybody yeah. wanted to take part. The rowing teams attended. We have a couple of uh, Coast Guard volunteers, Coast Guard Auxiliary volunteers that have been coming since the very beginning. And we just formed the council from there. And the, the first time we were able to have a meeting at the finished boathouse was great i think it was last november or december mm. i think and it's a great space yeah. it really is like the meeting spaces uh in the in the field house portion of it and then the 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 hall where they do like yoga and you know various classes and stuff there right. is, is really cool the way that you can see the view over the river and this time i know on the solstice the sunset lined up with the big picture window yeah which i was told was really cool to watch <laughs> that's awesome well, that's interesting yeah <laughs> yeah and it's one of one of the reasons why i'm so excited to have you both in the studio is because like you know, you're both deeply involved in this boathouse right <laughs> it's like and you guys have never met right <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is kind of a, 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 like one of the incredible weird ways that architecture works and you know and you've been involved from the from the community side um uh, you know from from the early days and and so 
I'm I'm kind of curious to hear the other side also, right? Like, mm-hmm. especially being an architect myself, you know, like how how did this project start? You know, like how how did how did you guys talk with the community? Like, like what what was it that sort of um, I don't know what were the seeds of the project? Like, mm-hmm. get get into the nitty gritty details. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, the project started in 2011, actually. You know, and and here it is now. 2016 was when we officially occupied the building. Um, and it started with two boathouses uh, in, in 2011, just after the mayor and the US EPA uh, uh, announced their plans to get people access uh, hmm. to the river. Um, so we were one of four, or we were, we, we were one of two architects that uh, would then design uh, four boathouses. So Johnson Lee designed the other two at North Park and Ping Tom. Mm-hmm. And we uh, designed the uh, WMS Boathouse at Clark Park and then now Eleanor. We actually designed them simultaneously at the same time. Um, and for whatever reason, the Clark Park Boathouse got built first and then this one sort of got put on the shelf for just a little bit to, to get some more funding and then to eventually go forward. So there were a couple modifications that had to be made and you know, right. like any any city project, you have to work with budgets, and um, you know you have to work with the, uh, the the park district to make sure that it's sort of meeting their standards. You know, there's a right. lot of prescribed requirements. You know that the CPD has for maintenance and durability and whatnot. Yeah. Um, in terms of how we we went about the process, um, we worked a lot with uh, with the rowing clubs, uh, in particular CTC and Row were the two that we really had a lot of back and forth with. Mm. To ensure that you know it was meeting their standards and it was you know it was able to house what they had and it was also about um, trying to build in some sort of future expansion into the project as well, so right. that the community can grow with it, you know, and the building can sort of accommodate that. Um, so you'll see in it that there's a lot of extra space, you know, in some areas, so that the the rowing clubs can grow or other people can start to form their own organizations if they want to, to then possibly move into the building. Um, right. uh, so. It, it, you want me to get into the real design of it, or yeah, please. I mean, like you know, just like where where do you start, yeah. right? I think a lot of people well, are maybe curious. You know, this thing kind of yeah. like lands like a friendly spaceship on on the shores <laughs> of Bridgeport, right? And uh, we're all grateful for it. But you know, I think like people are probably curious, like you know, like well, how, how the hell did they come yeah. up? Am I allowed to say that on the radio? Sure. Okay, great. Uh, <laughs> um, how how did they how yeah. did they come up with this? Like you know, was it was it a sketch? Who did no, it? Like, well, we had we had we had four months to design these buildings, um, at the same time. So you can imagine yeah, designing two twenty thousand square foot buildings in four months because the mayor was he was very very adamant about getting these things out there and and going forward and moving forward as fast as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, so we had about four months. It was a very quick, fast and furious design process. Um, and a lot of it was really just experimentation. So we mm. were really just going into it and saying, what is, what is rowing? What is it about? You know, we want to make it more than just about a boat. Um, you know, it's about rowing. It's about getting on the water. It's about the action of rowing. So um, we did a lot of research into um, the anatomy of the rowing cycle. Um, we got into looking at uh, the uh, – uh, uh, the the photography of uh, Edward Moy Bridge um, sure. and looking at his sort of stop motion capturing of one sort of row cycle, the, the drive and the recovery. Um, and that's sort of what was the inspiration behind the, the, uh, the two truss types that you sort of see. So there's sort of a V and an inverted V um, right. on the truss types of the, of the building um, that then creates sort of these sawtooth roofs that uh-huh. are on it. Um, and so then we, 
we said, okay, this is feeling right. This is looking great. Um, so these inverted trusses, and then we just started to play with the materiality um, mm. and to see what the materiality was. We had to be durable, um, which was sort of prompting this idea of having zinc. You mm. know, it's, it's a long lasting material out there uh, that'll weather well. Um, and uh, then we sort of looked at what are the environmental uh, aspects of the building. So you would normally see a sawtooth roof that would be facing north, right? Mm-hmm. So we faced everything south because the, the warehouse building, the, uh, the storage building, is not traditionally heated and cooled. You know, it has some space heaters in there, um, mm-hmm. but it's not cooled in the summer. Um, so we faced it south, actually, to, um, to allow the sun to come into the building and heat it in the winter to make it so that you can sort of use it year-round. So it right. sort of opens the doors to them being able to be in there and work on the boats or, you know, just have activities in there as they need. Um, so that's kind of the the very quick down and dirty of it. Um, yeah. Um, and, you know, the, I think the, the site is amazing. You know, I think it's one of the greatest sites in Chicago. If you really stand there, yeah. you can see down the canal, you get Bubbly Creek, you get the south side, but you also get wonderful views of the city. So right. it just sort of was sited great that we could, you know, take the two buildings and split them. Mm-hmm. And orient them, you know, one towards the towards downtown and one down the um, towards the uh, the canal, um, which created that really nice sort of uh, courtyard in between the two buildings. So, yeah. so that was kind of its sighting, and then you know, connecting a, a path all the way around and just creating a lot of green space. And um, there you have it. Right. Yeah. yeah, and you know, it's. I think with all. Did that make sense? It does. Yeah. <laughs> abso- absolutely. Yeah, and. I think one of the interesting things when you go see the project is like the kind of um, economy of means that, Mm -hmm. you know, able to accomplish a lot with some like very simple things um, and and simple moves. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, you know, with public projects, um, you know, there's never enough money, <laughs> right? Uh, it's, well, it, that's, I think that's a misconception. Yeah. There, there is enough money. It's, just, it's, it's what you have to work with. Sure. You know, and you just have to work with that and you have to find a way and you sort of, you pick your battles and, and you know, as an architect, you have to sort of look at things and say, what's important about, about the project and yeah. you know, what's needed for the project. Right. And you work with that budget to really sort of eke out what what you can make of it, you know, the sort of the gem that you can make out of that. Yeah. And so, yeah, what, what, what were those battles? What battles did you pick? <laughs> <laughs> I won't well, ask you what battles you, you decided to leave on the table. Uh, right. But <laughs> well, we, we did feel strongly about the, the trusses and the shapes of those trusses. And we felt strongly about the plywood interior. Mm. You know, we felt that um, those were the things that we really thought were, would make this project sing. You know, and it wasn't really a fight or a battle. It was just basically proving out or scrutinizing things to the point where, you know, it was proven that these things are not any more costly than a traditional sawtooth right. roof. You had a long span. It's just now a long span in a different shape. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's not really a battle so much as it is sort of educating people to, to understand what the architecture is and why it is. And mm. that it's, it's really traditional building methods just done in a very unique way. Right. Yeah. And do you, do you feel that, Owen? Like, do you feel, do you, like when, when you go to the building, like, I don't know, like, what, what is like the architecture like do for you? <laughs> it's like, sorry, that's maybe like an impossibly well, unfair no, question. It's not really an unfair question. I think the layout when you actually approach the buildings and you walk in between the two of them is nice because you don't immediately see the water as you're doing it. So if you walk between the two of them, it's sort of like the water opens out in front of you. Yeah. And it's the turning basin. So it's actually a pretty good size expansive water for the river. And that's, you sort of turn the corner and there it is, which is really kind of cool. Uh, just I remember that from when I first uh, approached it. And then when you're inside, I really, 
it's not kind of cathedral esque in a way. <laughs> you know how large the spaces are, kind yeah. of churchy, like the you know the way that the the, the roof slopes upward. Mm. Um, but it has a warm feel to it as well because of like the plywood. It yeah. gets like a warm feel in the light, which is nice because a lot of institutional buildings, think schools and like uh, park mm. district buildings, you have the brick painted like a yellow, and yeah. it just sort of feels kind of bland because it's always fluorescent lighting because that's usually the most en- energy efficient. Right. So it does have a warm feel to it. Um, in that respect, it's it is also interesting because it stands out um, in contrast to pretty much all of the architecture down here. Mm-hmm. You have a, you know very old neighborhood, and a lot of the large structures down here are either warehouses or churches. Right. So we have very few buildings which are sort of fresh and new like that, which mm-hmm. are just not like anything around them. Yeah. So it sort of stands out. And I have to say, at first, I didn't like it. I'd be sitting there on Ashton, <laughs> looking at them building it, and I'm like, oh, that thing's ugly. But it's because I like I like red brick. I like old warehouse yes. buildings. Yes, and we stuff. are in a sea of red brick. And yeah. <laughs> and now it's one of those, like, I'm really, I'm fond of it, and I like it. And when it was, the design choices were explained to us when we had our first tour, it's like, okay, this makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And then also, the boats need a lot of space. They're very big boats. They're they like 60 be, feet long. They can be yes uh, yeah. yeah even the Some small 55 55 yeah <laughs> even the small ones are really long and they need space to move them around space to store them so just having that high of a ceiling and the way that it's designed makes a very good functional mm-hmm. uh from a functional standpoint as well when you actually see so their storage like move the boat up and then back yeah down. and they need to stack them five four or five high i think just the way they're sort of on shelves yeah so it needs to be that big right yeah yeah, they're not easy, easy to maneuver, actually, and, and transport. Uh, I, I had the opportunity to take a boat out and, and row, and they're, they're not easy. They're very heavy, actually. You would think they're not very heavy. They're, they're yeah. like graphite and carbon fiber and whatnot, and, yeah. but they're actually quite heavy. Um, and you, have to, you need a lot of space in order to move those things in and out. I see. Yeah, it's interesting. And I noticed there's too like a giant concrete apron, which I assume is where they bring the boats out and let right. them rest. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's funny that you mentioned about the roof. Um, because, uh, you know, I was I was thinking about this the other day, which is, you know, and in, in, in cathedrals, right? Like what they have in common or church spaces is they have this kind of giant expanse. Yes. Um, about, it's like this room, uh, you know, above your head that, you know, you, you can't actually occupy, but contributes to the feeling of space. And it's not something that architects think much about anymore. It's not like a technique that, mm-hmm. that gets utilized often. So it's, and it's kind of, there's something very, uh, I don't know, like nice about, um, you know, if churches and, and these kinds of grand public spaces were, were you know, exactly that, the public spaces of a hundred years the ago. Word, the word grand is great. Yeah. It gives you a sense of grandeur. Like if you think of cathedrals, right. you're in awe of the Lord, right? So yeah. they have this, this great big space. They've captured yeah. that much space in a building for no other reason than the sake of catching it. Yeah. So right. even and bringing the light in for different reasons. Yeah. yeah. It's a spiritual reason to bring in the light in, yes. whereas this is bringing the light in, you know, to really be used. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Not not to pray to the altar of, exactly. uh, of the boat. <laughs> <laughs> boating. Right. Although uh, I'm sure it would be a great space if that was your flavor. Um, yeah. yeah I, the, the plywood is interesting too because I imagine you know to the listeners who might not be familiar with the space, they're probably thinking like plywood. You know, how could that look nice? And and um, you know, I think there there was clearly a lot of thought that went into that and how you finish plywood and and kind of you know make it uh, something that you want to look at and. Yeah, well, that was about it. Was about affording a material that you can use that's mm. not 
drywall. Right. You know, everybody's answer to something, you know, when they want to, to, to make a space is put drywall on it. That's kind of the standard go-to material. And we didn't want to do that. Why we not? Wanted, uh, why not? Yeah. Um, well, because it is a boathouse and it has to be durable. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, you, 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 you hit drywall and it's obviously going to have a hole in it. You hit plywood, you're not going to have a hole in it. So uh, the idea was to use a durable material that is beat upable, but then is also quite beautiful. You know, yeah. it's, it's natural. It's wood. Um, and we also found that it was able to conform to the curvature of the, the ceiling. You know, right. you look at, you look on the outside of the building and there's a lot of straight lines and there's actually a curvature to, to the roof and to the ceiling that's made out of all of those straight lines. Mm. So the plywood was able to sort of bend to that. Gotcha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very nice. And I think that's one of the other interesting things of the building. And, um, you know, if you are a, uh, if you're, if you're, Sort of a not architect looking at it, you see like it's it's very seamless, right? And and it kind of just looks, you know, like a very clean building. Um, and I think you know, looking at it as certainly as the project architect, you know, there's a lot of hidden stuff <laughs> that uh, you know, lots of um, gymnastics that have to be taken care of uh, to achieve that aesthetic mm-hmm. um, and to kind of make the building, um, you know. I don't know, friendly 300 and 360 degrees, you know, usually, usually buildings always have a back, um, a backside. Um, Mm -hmm. I had, yeah. Um, I had professors who used less than kind words for the building's backside. Um, (laughs) uncouth analogies. Um, uh, but yeah, like, you know, the, the, the house, you know, it's got a little bit of a service area, but, but not too, too much of one. Well, all the HVAC's concealed. Yeah. Right. So that you think of like a backside of a building, there's not an HVAC unit sitting outside of it. You could just go around and there's one side which has less windows, is less polished, but it's still, there's not pipes and wires and everything sticking out. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, you, you also notice you don't see any of the plumbing vents coming out of the roof. They were all strategically placed. Oh, yes. I so didn't notice that, so that's perfect. We've, uh-huh. Yeah, we've, <laughs> we've talked about plumbing vents on this show before, mm-hmm. but could you explain what a plumbing vent is? <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's the vent, you know, it, when... when <laughs> when number two goes down, yes, <laughs> it has to vent vent out the air. So basically, the the sort of exhaust of of your yeah. toilet system or your, your yeah. plumbing system goes out the roof. Yeah, basically. the my my go to analogy here, and uh, longtime listeners will recognize it, is the it's like you know when you put your thumb on top of a straw. Um, in like a, a in like a, a I don't know a cup of cup of pop and mm-hmm. like pull it out and the and the water stays in the or the pop stays in the straw, like that's the uh, if if you that's sure. why you need the vent. <laughs> yeah, or, or or if you're old school, otherwise you're, it'll a can, stick in an old pipe. can opener. You'd open one side very big and then you put a little pop hole on the other side. Right. For yes. A vent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Maybe that's the better <laughs> analogy for all those party people. <laughs> yes. Yeah. When you sh- when you shotgun a beer, yeah, you need you need you're <laughs> you venting need to, it out. You need to vent. <laughs> you need the vent. Yeah, so so where's the vent? Yeah, where's yeah, where's they're, the vent? They go through the roof. It's just it's about sight lines. Yeah. Um and you know making sure that uh you know that uh, the sight lines are seeing the building and not all of the services of the building. Right. Um, so I think if you stand very far away, you'll yeah. end up seeing them, but you know when you're very close to the building, you're proximate to it, you're not going to see them. And so what do you do? Do you just do you build a model? Do you make a drawing and you uh, kind of modeling look at it? uh 3D modeling, physical modeling. Our offices uh, we 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 uh, we study in all ways um, through sketch, through physical model, through digital model, um, and through writing, um, diagramming, etc. Yeah. Um, so there you have it. You know, you don't see anything going going through the roof. Um, 
And I guess after the break, we can talk a little bit more about roof drains if you want to talk yes, about roof drains. I'm, I'm, which I'm is one of the more exciting the details. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the more exciting details of the project, actually. <laughs> yeah, for sure. We can get into Flashing Keeper. Yes, yeah, pl- <laughs> please. Yeah. Like, you know, all this stuff is really interesting if you've got interesting people to talk about it. So, uh, <laughs> so I think we'll go to the break and uh, we'll continue our conversation here in a few minutes as Buildings on Air. We are back from break. Uh, this is Buildings on Air. Um, I'm in the studio still with William Emick and Owen Lloyd um, talking about the Eleanor Street Boathouse. Um, and uh, we were just, we were promised some discussion about roof drains. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so t- yeah, tell us, because it does seem when you go, when you go to the building, you know, one of the other things that you don't see is gutters, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And um, if you look at very closely, you can see that there's some sort of, the, the building is doing some clever things with getting water um, off of the roof and into the ground. Yep. Um, so, so walk us through that. Yep. I, I'll walk you through. I'll, I'll first say that this is fantastic that you're allowing me to talk about this. <laughs> Most architects don't get the opportunity to talk about the nitty gritty details. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there are, are a lot of things in the building that you don't see, and it was all purposeful. Yeah. Um, and and then I think that's that's really what makes a good building. You know, is really working hard at not having to see the things that that really you know are behind the scenes and and really don't need to be seen. Mm. Um, so, what we were we were we were tasked with by the Chicago Park District was to not have any internal roof drains, hmm. um, and you can imagine how tricky that might be on a project like this right. to not have any internal roof right. drains. Because I think most people probably don't even know that, right? It's kind of an interesting thing mm-hmm. that, especially con- most contemporary commercial structures the water is not going off the sides of the building. It's draining, th- it's going through the walls. That's right, right. <laughs> Which is kind of an odd thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It is a little odd when you try so hard to really waterproof a building and keep water out of it that, you know, roof water is the one thing that you're bringing into the building yeah. to send it under the building. It's quite <laughs> right. odd. Um, so on this, uh, the CPD, the Chicago Park District, uh, uh, one of the requirements was to not have any roof drains whatsoever. Hmm. Um, and on a building like this, it's quite difficult to do it. Hmm. Um, but again, it's 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 not old technology for these sawtooth sort of warehouse type buildings to have all the water just going off to the edges. So mm-hmm. um, you'll see sort of the the crenellated or the uh, serrated edge of the building, the mm. the footprint of the building is sort of making use of those creases yeah. um, to then bring the water down. So it's really kind of a detail that you don't see that the water, those are actually downspouts going down the side of the building um, where all the creases happen or the folds of the building happen yeah. and then go down and percolate through and um, go into the, the river. Yeah, and yeah, water management seems to be an important theme, mm-hmm. uh, which is maybe apt for... <laughs> water management is incredibly important, yeah. especially mm-hmm. if you want to be able to use the river without swimming in, or boating through sewage. Yes. It's something the city really ne- is moving more toward, and it needs to be worked into every new building. It's right. super important in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Especially yeah. alongside, immediately alongside the river. Oh, actually, anywhere in the city. Because yeah. it's, mm-hmm. it's combined sewer system and sewage. So if the right. water is not going into the ground it's going to the sewer system and that's why our waterway is so polluted right which yeah. you should read reverse effect because that's one of the moves yes <laughs> in reverse effect yeah um and, and interesting enough is that we are bringing all the concrete the huge concrete apron that you mentioned out there that's yeah. all uh, permeable concrete so right. all the water goes in through the concrete and um is uh, brought into the ground yeah 
I had a question about that. Um, like, <clears throat> so the permeable concrete. So you know, the reason why the folks get cracks in their sidewalk, right, is because water comes into the side into those microscopic crack mm-hmm. cracks. Then it expands, and the crack gets bigger, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we have winters freestyle effects. Freestyle effects, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with the with the permeable concrete, um, you know, it's basically just like a sort of loose aggregate and the mm-hmm. water can flow all the way through. It's kind of, you go to these trade shows and you have like a guy who like pours a cup of water on a block of concrete and all the water comes through the mm-hmm. other side. It's kind <laughs> of amazing. But like, I, I'm, I don't know, maybe you don't know the answer, uh, but like, I'm, I'm, I wonder why it doesn't happen. Uh, like why the freeze thaw doesn't just split all of that loose aggregate apart. Well, it, you do get a little bit of aggregate that's sort of, you'll see the top layer. Some of it does loosen up. Uh, uh-huh. It's just natural to happen like that. But it's because you have air gaps in it, right? Yeah. So the water can go somewhere and it can expand and contract within those gaps. Right. So the gap is actually big enough to not get cracked. Right. That's right. Interesting. All right. So yeah. I hope I hope I answered that. Correctly. No, I think I'm I, sure I'm right though. <laughs> yeah, I think that that sounds right to me. Um, yeah. So yeah. Per, there you go. If you if you're looking for a way to uh, tackle this giant problem meadow and highlight it, you can uh, put in some permeable concrete. In Every that, little bit helps in your backyard. That's yeah. exactly yeah. right. It does help. Every little bit does help. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. There was there's a warehouse next door to where my studio is where I just their drains their gutter drains go directly into the sewer. Yeah, they just that's just where they run is directly into the sewer, and that was the way they were doing it in the late eighteen hundreds. Was yeah. and all of the rainwater rolling off that building goes directly into the sewer for really no good reason apart from that's how they designed it back then. It's combined sewer system, yeah, that's, yeah. that's yeah. Chicago system. Yes, and it's very low. Um, yes, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I and the whole city was actually built up to accommodate that infrastructure. Yeah, right. Yeah. Which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that's also why, uh, you know, just putting a little standpipe um, over your tr- floor drains in your basement will usually get, get uh, solve the problem if your basement floods because uh, it's a it's an issue of hydrostatic pressure, mm-hmm. right? The water levels always are trying to equal out. So when there's a lot of water in the system, it's equaling out right into your basement. Um, <laughs> and so if you if you just put a little pipe there, um, it'll equalize into the pipe. Mm-hmm. Um but anyway, uh, I, so I'm, I'm curious to, to, to talk more about the kind of future of, of the park and the site and, and these kind of, you know, we're talking now about water management and these kind of bigger issues mm-hmm. of uh, the infrastructure of the city, um, which this park has its kind of uh, small role in, in playing, right? Even if it's mostly sort of sociological, psychological in terms of reacquainting people with this kind of amazing resource that was, you know, primarily industrial for mm-hmm. the last hundred years. Um, so, yeah, I, I know, Owen, you're sort of familiar being on the Parks Advisory Council, keeping a, a tab on the goings-on around yeah. uh, the rivers and, and um, you know, as, as, as an architect who, you know, works on a lot of projects on the river and I imagine you know these projects have a way of kind of building on themselves and mm-hmm. you know you win you win another project sort of on the basis of the excellent work that you've already done um, so curious floors open what do you guys think is, is sort of next for the rivers this the type whole of the, it's this I mean you're going back to you talking about Chicago's resource of the parks um, the local government and the EPA and a lot of people are turning towards the river as the next sort of great 
park that the city has. Mm-hmm. And any new development along the river is going to take that into account. So rather than turning your back on what was once an open sewer and a place for industry, it's now all of the designs up and down the river, including the boathouse and any even new warehouse or something, has to take into account the river and people's access to it. And so the whole city is going to be turning more toward that, you know, and the right. pollution gets less and less with the the deep tunnel project coming closer and closer to completion the water is going to get cleaner it's going to be greater accessibility for people uh and the boathouses are kind of step one Mm -hmm. in that Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. because it's turning around saying we're going to be able to boat we're going to be able to use this water it's still polluted so keep that in mind but it's a whole heck (laughs) of a lot better than it was when it was just a way to stop the population from getting cholera in the 1850s. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes, so yeah. S- stay in your boat for the time being, uh, but, or but you can be on the boat. <laughs> wash, you know, wash yourself after you get out, depending on where you are. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah. So this is, I think people are going to be looking more towards the riverway as, as leisure, as, you know, as a, as a benefit for the city, apart from just an industrial thing. There, there is the, uh, I believe, it, I, don't get me quote me on this, but it's, I believe it's the Chicago's Urban Edges Riverfront project mm. that's going on right now. It's about seven or eight design firms that are now have been given a handful of sites to sort of imagine what can happen mm-hmm. on these sites that are along the river uh, that stretch, I believe, uh, it's from downtown through to Ping Tong, or <laughs> God, <laughs> Ping Tom Park. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I messed that up. Um, but there's a, about four or five sites, I think, that uh, we're, we're one of the teams that are on that, that um, is looking at, you know, sort of reimagining what these spaces are and what they can do for the river mm-hmm. that aren't boathouse oriented, but are about sort of activating those, those specific urban conditions on the river. Yeah, and I, I think I've, I've looked at some of those proposals, and I, I think... You have? They're out yet? Uh, there's, like, a website of, like, I don't know, maybe it's a different thing, but um, I know that uh, Ross Barney Architects had, yeah. had done a thing for the park on uh, Ashland right across mm-hmm. the creek. Um, but, yeah, and, and I, I've seen some of them, and I know they've had some community meetings down here at the Chicago Maritime Museum. Oh, the one yeah. in Ashland, I think that was... Uh, proposal for the uh, mixed-use space for a parcel of property that's, that's right. for sale yeah, just that was south of the that park. That is correct, yeah. yes. Yes, and I saw, like, renderings of that, yeah. Right. Yeah, this new initiative you'll be seeing soon. Okay, all I right. Think we just wrapped it up. Okay, oh, very exciting. <laughs> it was announced, though, so I'm able to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Good, we don't have to censor you uh, retroactively. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, pull, pull back in those FM waves somehow. Um, but, I, you know, the next yeah. step is really starting to clean it up, though. You know, we're getting people out there. So now the more people that are wanting to go out there, the next step is really cleaning it up. Right. Yeah. And and one of the, the interesting things, you know, this is you know, a show we, we often talk about kind of politics um, and and all, all of this is sort of political in, in its way. Um, but one of the one of the ways in which those things sort of directly meet um, is through zoning, zoning um, discussions. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, all all of the. Uh, land around the rivers is uh, what they call plan manufacturing district, which, you know, so it's zoned as a, as a PMD. And um, that means that you have to have basically the approval of, of city council, which starts by getting the approval of your alderman um, f- to do any project along the river. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious, uh, I don't know, maybe from uh, like, what, how does that, how does that figure in? <laughs> like, so when you, maybe, it, maybe the answer is it doesn't, but um 
How, how do you have to think about that? I, I, I don't think it really factors in. You know, yeah. if, if you're given a project, you know, you can get things rezoned if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a process to do it, but yeah. you can get it rezoned. I don't think that it really has too much impact on what you would do in that particular site. Right. Um, it's 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 really what what it's it's about what you want to do there and the ambition and you know if the ambition is there you're going to get it to happen right yeah if the ambition if you have the funding to do it the city won't stand in the way right. yeah because the plan manufacturing there's a lot of plan manufacturing in the city which is basically just sitting idle because manufacturing doesn't is moved out outside of cities now right so you know people it's a just leftover. need to yes yeah. exactly and they need to rethink what can be done with these spaces I mean there's a massive one just south of us where right. Half of it's just vacant buildings or vacant lots because it's just manufacturing and nobody's building it in the city yeah. anymore. Yeah, and and it's interesting, you know, to 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 boil it sort of down like that. If you have the ambition, it's not a problem because it makes me, you know, think like one of the great things one of, one of the great things about uh, what Studio Gang has been able to do, right, is to kind of like and, and the sort of value of of having an architect is to really like help like i don't know like paint a picture of an ambition right like uh that's something that that an architect can do and is talk to the community and sort of understand the issues and 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 really put that forward there because i think probably um without that you know you might end up talking to an alderman who'd be like the river the river's this thing that smells bad <laughs> yeah <laughs> right 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 and, and and you can come in and say no it's it okay it does smell bad but it doesn't have to forever and also like you know uh here's here's all the fantastic things that it can afford us mm-hmm. so um yeah i'm 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 very very curious to to like and and also that that comes down to like renderings right and like sort of showing showing off the project before it's ever mm-hmm. a real thing. Yeah, what's the vision, you know, yeah. sort of getting getting some excitement out there and, and getting people sort of to, to, in their own minds, see what that vision is. You know, a rendering can only do so much. You yeah. know, it, 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 it hopefully sparks interest in people and, you know, it's yeah. sort of, they can imagine themselves in that place. Yeah. So, and I'm, I'm curious too, like, like how does, how does the office sort of relate to renderings? Cause mm. this is sort of maybe like an architecture, like a hot button issue of like, you know, um, like you, you don't want to paint too much of a picture of reality or it can be disappointing, mm-hmm. right. Or, or not meet the ambitions or, or, mm-hmm. or not leave room uh, to people's imaginations. It's, it's a balancing act, obviously, you know, you don't want to show too much where you get yourself, you back yourself into a corner and it starts to suggest too many things that are realistic, but um, there's nothing wrong with suggesting, you know, a vision and an idea and having a bit of reality in there. The way we work, though, is renderings are part of the process. Mm. Um, it's not a deliverable. It's not something that at the end, hey, we've designed this. Now let's make a rendering. Right. It's part of the process. So it, it's it's very much tied. It's tangible to the idea and to what we really want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I, I see nothing wrong with it. I see nothing wrong with, with, with making a rendering and suggesting believability or reality. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think uh, sort of... Uh, along um, similar lines, right, when we're talking about this relationship between the architect and, and the community, you know, the rendering is one way to, to communicate and talk about expectations and ambitions. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, I think it's always a question on this show, uh, you know, uh, 
of like the value of participatory design, um, which which you know, and, and how you sort of balance community involvement and input with uh, the expertise of the architect. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm 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 wondering if you can speak a little a little bit more about that. I, I think it's already come up a little bit, but like how how did that process play out in 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 the were there like literally were there community meetings? Like how did they go? What for questions the, for did the you boathouse themselves? Yeah. For the boathouse, we were moving so fast that we we unfortunately didn't have a lot of time for mm. community meetings it was really it was a four month go and design the buildings Uh, so we really worked with the rowing clubs to to really find out what needs to be in the building right Um, and we went through multiple iterations of of sketches and modeling and brought them in and you know we're we were um you know really sort of picking their brains about what they need for the project right um so unfortunately there wasn't there wasn't that direct sort of like we're going to go to the community and talk to them but that's not to say that the park district didn't do that. The sure. They were out the, there with the community, the and park dist- they did that side of it. Gotcha. The, the park district actually didn't in a lot of respects. Oh, respect. that's not I, – I know they did, though. Uh, they, there uh, was – when we first started doing the PAC meetings, there was uh, a bunch of people that lived just adjacent to the site that mm-hmm. were really put out that they didn't know what was going on. Mm. They just saw dump trucks coming and going constantly. Gotcha. And then once they were on the advisory council and talked to more people from the park district, they were totally cool with it. But there was, there was a little bit of, you know – what's going to happen with our parking and this and I that. See. So uh, I don't know how they were overlooked by the park district. Cause at first we, they first attended a couple of the early pack meetings and like, where did these angry people come from? Hmm. And That's then, interesting because there were early renderings before we got onto the project of these boathouses that yeah. they had announced and they had shown to the community and had a couple of events that, you know, sort of let yeah. them know what was going on. Um, yeah. Perhaps they didn't, they didn't follow up, you know, to the end of it. But, Maybe that you know, was it. Maybe they were just sort of left out for a little bit because mm-hmm. it was funny because they, they... It did go dormant them, for a bit. Yeah, they, like they came to the meetings and at first they were sort of put out thinking we were having meetings without them leaving them out mm-hmm. on purpose and we're like, no, we've only had a couple of meetings so far. Would you like to join the advisory council mm-hmm. at, mm-hmm. and help shape what's going to be going on at the boathouse? And they're like, oh, yeah, that's great. And several yeah. people live across the street are now like major... Major part of the advisory council, which helps quite a lot. Yeah. 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 Well, the kids that were on the rowing clubs were certainly part of the process, and they're part of that community. So, you know, there was that connection that was happening with the community. You know, there was a direct sort of connection of the people that would be using it at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and also, I'm I'm curious to, you know, if there's anyone out there who's listening who feels super passionate about uh, this project and 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 rowing in the rivers, um, how like. Oh, and maybe you can talk about the Park Advisory Council and, and what it is that they, they sort of do. Oh, the Park Advisory Council. Yeah, uh, most parks in the city have a Park Advisory Council, which is just a group of volunteers. It may or may not be a nonprofit, which advises the park district on what to do. So we don't actually have a final say on it, but we have monthly meetings. You're required to have a president, vice president, treasurer, and secretary. Mm. Uh, you can raise funds to, uh, like, we're actually, I think, going to be trying to put some benches in at the park and everything. So there's not really any benches outside to sit. Um, and it's just that we advise the park district. And yeah. anybody's free to attend the meetings there once a month. Uh, anybody's free to attend the meetings and voice concerns. I mean, ours is primarily the people that live on Eleanor Street, several of the rowing clubs, and a few other interested minds. Uh, And most clubs, I mean, McKinley Park has one. All the parks have an advisory council. This was just because they hadn't built the boathouse yet, and there's two very small parks across the river from Mm -hmm. it. There was no advisory council for those. So we sort of, you know, formed that. Because of that blistering pace, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, considering the four months of design, it's, it's very, it's, it's, 
um, amazingly impressive uh, just because it, it doesn't even look like you did like put together a good building in for, for four months of design. It just looks like you put together a good building. Um, so I think that's a, that's a testament to, um, um, you know, having, having a skilled group of architects. Um, and contractors and, and, yes. and people that support it. The city was a great supporter of the whole system. That's fantastic. Yeah. So uh, any, any other last words before we go to our, our, our break here and, and bring on our next guests? Uh, the Park Advisory Council meets at the Boathouse uh, 7 o'clock, first Tuesday of every month, if anybody wants to come by and say hi. Fantastic. Double-check me on the South Branch Pack on Facebook to double-check the times for me. But anybody's welcome to come to the meetings. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And I'd I, say get out on the river. Get yes, out on the yes, river. I All agree. right. All right. There you go. Um, marching orders. Yeah. Get, get out on that river. <laughs> go have a sandwich uh, on, on, on the uh, steps there. Um, and yeah, so uh, thanks, William. Thanks, Owen, Thank for you joining for us. Thank you. It's yeah. fantastic. It's nice to talk about some architecture. And um, when we come back, we'll be joined by Outpost Office talking about uh, Piranesi and ASCII and digital drawings and all kinds of fun stuff. So stick around for that. Welcome back to Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn. And uh, we are joined uh, for our second session by the good folks from Outpost Office, Ashley Bigham, Eric Herman. Can you guys hear us? Yes, we can. Excellent. And we can hear you all as well. So they are joining us uh, over the airwaves um, from Michigan, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, I, I'm so glad you guys could be on the show. Um, so I, I met you guys uh, a couple weeks ago, um, just down the street from the radio station here. Um, our good friends at Future Firm. Uh, they do an excellent uh, sort of show called The Night Gallery, where every night they turn their storefront into a projection that shows, um, I don't know, architectural videos. Um, and you guys had, had the pleasure of, uh, of being the sort of second um, people to have a projection up. Um, and it's called Another Campus Marzio. And um, uh, yeah, so tell us about it. Um, what was the kind of inspiration? Maybe explain what it is. Uh, I think one of the cool things about this show is that architects listen to it and non-architects listen to it. So you might have to tell us who Piranesi is and, and even what ASCII is. But um, yeah, let's, let's, let's dive in. Uh, what's the deal? Great. Well, thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Yeah, we're really thrilled to be on. So um, the project is... Uh, what we showed at the night gallery is actually like the latest iteration of a longer ongoing project. Um, and I guess to start to explain it, I would say that it's kind of an experiment in lo-fi translation. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that like we are really interested in issues around um, digi digitization and um, digital design culture. But one of the things that really strikes us is that usually the conversation is a hi-fi conversation. So it's a conversation about, um, you know, renderings that might uh, mimic um, or create simulations of the real world, things that are kind of excessively um, rendered. And what we're interested actually more in is the act of digital translation being uh, a form of abstraction. So um, essentially, no matter what, no matter how high resolution uh, of an image or a simulation might be able to produce, sooner or later you have to digitize that you have to translate it to ones and zeros so yeah. to do that in like a really rudimentary way a couple of years ago we started this series of ascii drawings so they're drawings that are composed completely out of characters in notepad <laughs> so we would take it actually started with um 
the Parthenon, so it makes a lot of sense, yeah. like a, a, an incredibly important building to the, to the discipline of architecture, this ancient temple in Greece. And we basically took the plan and made it out of a series of asterisks and dashes. Yeah. Um, and the idea there was just to see, like, what is that image like and what, is, what kind of information translates and what doesn't. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, so you guys have uh, produced this sort of book um, and, and I was lucky enough to get a copy um, and it basically has uh, sort of ASCII versions of um, famous projects and, and, and architectural details and different things totally composed out of, um, yeah, yeah, type characters. Um, so like, you know, growing up in the 90s, uh, you know, on, on AOL Instant Messenger, it's like a little bit of a nostalgia for what's going on uh, in the book. Um, but yeah, like, I, you know, how, how did you sort of pick the projects like you know talk about like um you know what exactly is going on in this book yeah yeah so uh, that's funny that you mentioned that i mean i think it's also kind of a generational thing a lot of people when we had the opening for the night gallery a lot of people walked by who were not architects and said oh it's like an old school video game (laughs) there's a kind of like pop culture aspect i think we were also bringing it in and the idea is that using this very, very rudimentary system for drawing um, that you actually kind of flatten it and make architecture accessible to anyone. So we were interested in taking something like the Pantheon, the Parthenon, um, really, really amazing temples and drawing them in a kind of uh, simple or almost dumb sort of way in the the best version of the use of the word dumb. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's kind of like an act of, it's just a fundamental act. Cause like we as architects always have to kind of translate these intentions for the real world, these intentions for something uh, at scale into forms of notation. And for us, this was like a shorthand. And it's funny you uh, ask which ones we chose because <laughs> that for every one that appears in the book, there's three or four failures in terms uh-huh. of things that don't actually translate well. Uh-huh. Uh, and that was kind of an early on important lesson. Uh, in terms of like the way a format can dictate uh, what can be communicated and what might be more successful and less successful. Yeah. Um, so this is uh, WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio, and we're talking to Outpost Office. Yeah, so I think uh, um, I, it's very interesting, this process of digital transformation, the kind of bigger issues that the project raises, because you know a lot of time is spent in architecture school discussing sort of like drawing as like a fundamental sort of act, right? Like, um, and, and I think, you know, lots of people think, okay, well, architects, they draw things, but, but like, really, when, when you're an architect, you do kind of have this uh, sort of, I don't know, quasi-spiritual like connection with like drawing and you really start to understand like drawing as, as a mode of thinking, um, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. which is kind of interesting, uh, you know, just you sort of instead of trying to represent something in your head, um, you know, you really are thinking through the act. Um, but, you know, when when it comes to this process of digital transformation, that process gets altered totally, right? Like, uh, because y- it's, it's not drawing, you, there's really not a whole lot of thought beyond, like, how can I make this tool look like this other thing? I don't know. Is that, is that, am I thinking yeah. about it in the right way? Is that like, a, no, no, I think that's, I think yeah. that's exactly, exactly right. I mean, I think what it is, is it's, it's a it's an effort to make uh, ourselves more medium conscious. Mm. So, like when we work within the act of drawing, I think that that it's it's something that generationally became kind of synonymous with design. But if you look at it as a as a mode, 
you definitely have to kind of translate your design intentions into something that conforms to the use of a pencil, the use of a pen, um, mm. and the and the fact that it's like a flat format. Like there's a lot of medium specificity to the act of drawing mm-hmm. that kind of gets ignored uh, because yeah. essentially it was just such a fundamental and um, dis- disciplinary act. So for us, it's like if everything is getting digitized, it's exactly it. Like you can make a kind of effortless translation. You can take a digital image and put it in Photoshop and it could feel like a perfect simulation, but we're more interested in what's lost in that abstraction or what kind of design opportunities are opened up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. In a, in a weird way, I think our, like uh, the way that we're using ASCII to draw, it's almost more similar to hand sketching in a way, <laughs> like if you, because it's all proportional, it's relational. Yeah. It only, it matters the first line, was it five characters or was it 10 characters? And then you <sighs> essentially base everything else off that first line. Yeah. But it's just like you make the first sketch, right? Whereas right. when you're really drafting in a more computer aided uh, design kind of drafting way, you're saying the first line is either 10 feet or it's 20 feet, right? right. And you're really stuck with that kind of real yeah. life dimension right. um, that we kind of get away from in this form of drawing. Yeah. And one of the, uh, on that note, you know, medium, the medium specificity of, of, of ASCII, which is so much fun to, <laughs> as an idea. But, you know, I, I, I remember when I first opened the book, um, you know, on, on the sort of, um, the front matter. I, I love that there are typefaces, right? <laughs> we, we list out the typefaces. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you could just talk about how you pick the typefaces for, for all of these pluses and minuses, because it becomes incredibly important, right? It's like, you know, the difference between drawing with a Sharpie and, and, and drawing with, you know, a mechanical pencil. <laughs> yeah. So the key is that you first have to use a monospace type. Yeah. So if you um, if you just open up Word document or something and it, you're using Arial, um, it's going to space. It's going to have different number, different amounts of space between each letter. A mono space type like Courier will have exactly the same mm-hmm. amount of spaces between each other letter. So that's kind of rule number one, I think. <laughs> so it's it's interesting because when you open these things up, if you change them to Times New Roman, they completely fall apart. <laughs> uh, but like the same information is there, which is really fascinating. But as an image being produced on the interface, be it paper or the screen, you can't read it anymore. Right. Uh, so I think that like again, the specificity. In fact, uh, this is something that Mario Carpo talks about in terms of the online experience mm-hmm. actually being. You know, we accept that, that there's a certain kind of flatness, and then everyone has a kind of mono experience. But of course, we know that like algorithms of Facebook produce different outputs on people's screens, but even just the different screens we use, the tint, the room we're in, there's too, there's so many more variables than we really take for granted within these mediums. Yeah. So the font choice becomes like a way in which, yeah, the code and information can still be there, but you yeah. can radically change the appearance and you can radically change if it's legible to a person. Yeah. So, and also we love the fact that you open it up in Notepad and it's the default. <laughs> right. A lot of this is about default and like, uh, as Ashley said, a certain like lo-fi dumbness. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's funny you bring up Mario Carpo. He was, uh, uh, he taught my um, architecture history 101 course at Georgia Tech. And we had no idea how lucky we were that, you know, this like, you know, sort of amazing architectural thinker was, you know, (laughs) teaching us about basic architecture. Uh, It's a total tangent, but he spent an entire class setting up a joke about beets in the Middle Ages, (laughs) like beets like that you eat. And like, I really wish I remembered the joke, uh, yeah. because, uh, but I just remember being like leaving class and we, you know, we just had like a 40 minute lecture and I was like, I didn't learn anything. That was a 40 minute long joke. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and and I think I, think, I, I think I got the turnip story. Yeah, right. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Got a root vegetable for every school. A root vegetable for every school. No, you were very like. I mean, he's an amazing. He's an amazing thinker. I think that you know he is particularly important to this project too. Because, as you know, like his obsession with Alberti and the idea of um, notation mm-hmm. as a kind of fundamental architectural act and representation yeah. um, is really wrapped up in this project. Like these are forms of notation. Mm-hmm. They're representational, but they are certainly yeah. notations at the same time. Yeah. Could, could you explain that difference a little bit more for like our, our non-architectural theory uh, uh, folks listening? Sure. Uh, <laughs> I can try. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to take a crack at it, or should? Sorry, the difference between notation, notation and, and representation. I'm trying and to think representation. Of... Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. So notation, I think, just to use an example, maybe of the Alberti notation, yeah. is maybe more, almost more sort of scientific and factual. Right. So you can think of notations as like literally kind of taking notes, and it might be a, a list or a chart or table of an numbers. An instruction set. An instruction yeah. set. It's kind of like number sets yeah. and, and instruction sets and a representation can be much more kind of fluid and free a representation can be anything from a sketch to a rendering to a photograph any kind of thing that represents another thing, right. Right? so i guess just to yeah i guess then we're talking about a difference between like a representation being something about you typically we would talk about it as terms of image whereas the representation or the notation might be uh an, an instruction right um, and that's important for, for architecture, um, you know, in terms of how, how we work and what we produce, right? Um, so plans, right, would be are, are highly notational. Right? And then we yeah. also have to communicate, uh, you know, what those plans could add up to, to, you know, we were just talking about uh, with, our, with our last guest, like, you know, painting an ambition for, for a client and a community. And, yeah. and images are, are key to that. And so we're always... We're always flipping and flopping between the two, and and I think, yeah, like like you guys were mentioning, it's 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 very clear in in the sort of uh, another Campo Marzio work that the project is talking about the sort of difficulty in doing that, and and um, like you know, it's the, this is a kind of like hyper architectural concern, but but it it matters um, for the way that you know buildings are ultimately realized. Um, right, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, and I, I think that's where Ashley really struck on it to say that. Like the most rewarding experience of doing the show is having like non-architects come by because I think it is something that oscillates between notation and yeah. representation. Um, and all those things are kind of this at, at stake at once and very recognizable, whether you're interested in it from a disciplinary approach or you're just someone interested in the kind of novelty of the image and kind of engaging how this thing unfolds over time in the case of the, the exhibition. Yeah. The other kind of like, um, you know, historian who's maybe like haunting this project um, is Manfredo Tafori, <laughs> right? And uh, he, he, gets a, he gets a mention on the, on the back cover. Um, but I like to think of uh, Tafori as the, the sort of patron saint of buildings on air. Um, <laughs> he, <laughs> he is this kind of saintly it- Italian figure um, who's, who's hovering in my mind constantly. Um, and, but yeah, it, you know, it says that he, he has this phrase sort of useless machine, right? And and he talks about Piranesi, uh, his drawings as a useless machine. And, and um, you guys, I think, are, are talking about um, code and, and, and algorithms and digital transformation in, in a similar sort of way. So, um, um, yeah, and I don't know if we really properly introduced Piranesi and, and Campo, Campus Marzio. So maybe you guys can talk about that for a second and then, and then jump into uh, Tuforia uh, for us. Yeah, that's great. Do you want to talk about the 
uh, Campo Marzio first, and then I can. Um, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so Campo Marzio is um, <clears throat> right by by Piranesi was a, a project and a a kind of amazing drawing that was really our inspiration for this project. And in that original work, um, <clears throat> pieces of Rome are recombined into one kind of collaged map of Rome, but it's not at any one maybe point in history. It's actually pieces of Rome that were um, taken from different points in history, but then all put on the same map together. So it's at once a kind of factual yet also fictional um, view of the city. So kind of collapsing real and, and fictional projects into one image. Um, and, and that that image is so important for architectural history for so many different reasons, but just, you know, a one way that it, in, it kind of inspired in this project is um, going back to your question of how did we choose the buildings maybe yeah. that we were, were drawing in this ASCII way. And so we were choosing buildings um, which were maybe built uh, 30 years ago or designed 30 or 40 years ago or designed um, hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago in, in a few instances. And so we were actually interested in this, this kind of format, this way of drawing, being able to kind of flatten time and flatten history mm -hmm. um, and to actually be able to compare side by side buildings that were 500 years apart, but, but compare them uh, through their proportions, through their sense of and use of space and, and different architectural elements. So, yeah. And I mean, I, I th this is uh, its significance, of course, is reinforced by people like uh, Tafiri engaging it when he's writing um, about the work. And I think we were really drawn to this 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 turn of phrase, this useless machine, because I think that uh, in terms of looking at dig digitalization in architecture, we're extremely interested in moving past the idea that anything that is a computational project has to be about performance or some kind of bottom line. Um, we like the idea that you can engage the computer and use its kind of expanded notions of creativity uh, that you can engage through different algorithms to kind of uh, revisit disciplinary themes and not try to necessarily um, think that the technology is going to take you where you need to go. So th this became a kind of way in which we could engage um, engage this engage the machine in something that didn't have any kind of endpoint. It didn't have a goal. Mm. Uh, it's it's certainly it's useless. I mean it's <laughs> like it is for us it's uh, more important to ruminate on it, to see it, to test it, and less important on uh, what it actually creates. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm curious too. You know, the, with this digital transformation, one of the things that I love about the project is I. I can't really tell if you guys are luddites or not. <laughs> and and uh and I and I have I certainly have luddite tendencies. I, I, I'm at least very skeptical. You know, and, and to put it in sort of blunt terms, of of the way that technology gets talked about in in architecture, right? I, I mean, you know, it it. I think that it often gets presented as this thing that opens up all kinds of possibilities and and is this go is going to save us all right through through its uh, uh, you know machines of of love and grace right and so um, um, I, I yeah and I, I sense a little bit of that in, in this work right where it's kind of like yeah like uh, you know computers are cool and they do stuff for us um, but like you know 
we're, we're at the end of the day, we're just drawing buildings still. Right. Like, and that's what architects do. And so like, let's talk about that. Um, to, to me, that's the, what, you know, what gets me really excited about the project, but I guess, you know, just to go to the original question, uh, however unfair it might be, are, are y'all Luddites? What's the deal? <laughs> <laughs> Um, can it, can we be on a spectrum or? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you can be a reluctant Luddite. Yeah. Or, or uh, somewhere in I the middle. Guess. Neutral. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the tendency is there, I guess, as someone who teaches design computation, I'm not really allowed to be. <laughs> uh, I, I think that what I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Luddite in the sense of, I, I, I really want to strong, respond strongly to the, mm-hmm things you just described, right. uh, which is this here. kind of like technocratic approach to computation, this idea that the computer is there to, I mean, uh, fundamentally, um, computation and architecture has had a difficult history because of this term computer-aided design, mm. um, which is a, a, you know, a, most people might know the shorthand CAD, um, which is used to describe these, um, these softwares, which architects use for basic acts of drawing or modeling. The, the problem with that phrase, computer-aided, is that the idea is that the computer is there as a corrective measure. Mm. So basically saying that the user is somehow uh, going to make a mistake and the computer will be able to uh, be there to make sure that they don't do that. Um, so it basically, from the very beginning, the premise is, is that the computer corrects the human which and the human supplies not design but error. And I think that um, that framework has still is still kind of the dominant way that uh, um, we talk about the digitization of the design process mm. and for me I just it, it's the computer is really good at some things like it's really good at processing mm-hmm. you can teach it how to stop you can't teach it how to start so it has so many inherent limitations that need to be acknowledged and I'm more interested in using the technology in a way to expand how we might talk about issues that um, are a little, I guess, less less hard to solve and don't have uh, a precise goal. So, I mean, I think the Campo Marcio is one in a, in a host of projects we're working on where we're trying to essentially use the computer as a lens through which you can see the world mm-hmm. and not as a tool with which to simulate it. That's the distinct difference in the I way see. we like to talk about how we use it. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a very powerful distinction. Yeah, and and so yeah, the the computer aided uh, design is is interesting. I never thought about it in that way. I'm I'm wondering too, like if if you could, I don't know, talk more about like sort of like Revit and and, and <laughs> like rendering software and, and these yeah. sorts of things that because I th- I think about it all the time, right? Where you know someone comes in and asks you to do a building, right? And, and you know, you have this sort of library of, of details and things that you can assemble off of the shelf. And a lot of them come from uh, companies and suppliers. And, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all made so easy. <laughs> and right. uh, uh, there's a kind of lure to it. And it and, but, but it's also so removed from what you call disciplinary knowledge, right? right. Which is the kind of right. knowledge right. that um, makes architecture. It's the stuff that like uh, that we go to school to learn, so we know where to put columns and and you know what makes a building beautiful and, and aesthetics and and all of these sorts of these sorts of big big picture ideas, um, which are at the core of what we do. So yeah, right. the floor's open. What's what's 
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah. Because well, that, that's a great question. I, I was already thinking of the answer almost when Eric was talking before, which is that kind of uh, the, another layer of this project is in in something that's going on largely in the architecture discipline or is a kind of conversation in architecture right now, um, which which springs from the kind of use of computers right to make these. Um, really high quality photorealistic renderings and we kind of reached maybe in the 90s or in the early 2000s we could we could do that right that like we can now make a rendering that looks you know uh, someone can't tell if it's a rendering or a photograph and so it looks just like a photograph and so actually I think as kind of reaction to that architects have stopped making photorealistic renderings or we're really yeah. pushing um, other types of yeah. representation at the moment. Right. And the, I know the Graham Foundation digital. in uh, Chicago just recently had a, a really beautiful, which we saw a couple weeks ago, really beautiful exhibition all about this idea, right? The kind of flatness, right? Flatness and depth. And so um, there's there's lots of montage, collage. Re-engagement kind of, of collage. Flat yeah. models, um, rendering real environments, but then printing them on 2D images, uh, on 2D surfaces. So I think that there's yeah. that kind of in the air as well, which I think right. we're we're um, engaged in those conversations. Um, yeah. our, our output might just look a little different. Yeah, I think those tendencies are really shifting. So, like, um, if to loop back, uh, I think there's a kind of, as Ashley was saying, like, I think these tools came online. They started to be kind of accepted within, uh, within academia and also within the profession. But I think that there's a kind of new generation which is essentially trying to be promiscuous with those tools and essentially kind of undermine or maybe even capitalize on the way they work. Because fundamentally, like something like Revit, the way you were describing, is part of the larger uh, role of ubiquitous computing today, which is less analytical and more anticipatory. Like the way you're describing using Revit is the same way that uh, like... Uh, your Blue Apron app makes life easier in right. terms of setting yes. up your menu for the next week. Like it's the same kind of thing where it's uh, architecture is kind of served to you and your next decision is prompted right. and reduced for you. Um, so that, that, that's like architecture is struggling in the same way. And what we're interested in is like these people that are essentially using those softwares, but in really interesting ways. So like someone like team, our colleagues at Michigan who are taking rendering softwares and uh, completely undermining um, their initial uh, use, working with these in a really uh, interesting sense, engaging questions of image. So I think that there's, there's definitely like room for promiscuity and that's yeah. what we're interested in because that's, that's how you kind of expand the notion of how the tools can be used. Yep. Misuse yep. is the most important thing. That's a really powerful, yeah, <laughs> I love that. It's a really powerful metaphor too, uh, you know, Rev, like Revit and all of these things as like, these tools that we use as, as Blue Apron where, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, like the products really is. The, the get whole served up. There. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and I think you guys are cooking from scratch, right? <laughs> and um, um, some of some of these other, the, especially you know the, the work that's up at the Graham Foundation, and, and hopefully we'll actually have Manadnock uh, on the show, uh, a Dutch architecture firm that's very oh, wow, much yeah, in this moment of post digital. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fingers crossed. Uh, uh, send Job an email for me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but but uh, I think um, 
like, yeah, if, to extend the Blue Apron metaphor, what they're doing is they're remixing, you know, the ingredients, right, um, yeah. to cook a, a dish uh, that's outside the instruction menu. Um, yeah. yeah, it's interesting, but it's it's also this this notion of mistake. I think is is also really interesting. Uh, because you know, it's also something that architects don't want to like ever admit to. Like we're 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 so um, I don't know uh, allergic to mistakes, and even even as an architecture school, you know, the mistake is put up on a pedestal as exactly what you guys are talking about. Like this potential thing, you can realize something in, from a whole new perspective through through these kinds of um, issues. But you know, all of a sudden. Um, you get into the, the you know the world of, of commissions and you know everyone is like you cannot have a mistake because mistakes cost money and you will get sued right and and right. and that trickles down and has this really negative effect even though those are sort of two separate problems in the end maybe um, but but uh, yeah like I'm, I'm curious if you could talk more about the mistake uh, hmm. yeah. I get, yeah, no, I, I think we do have to qualify the kind of difference, right? Uh, between or like say if it's an error or a mistake. I think that the misuse is interesting because it it suggests a basically a misuse. like sorry, it, I said mistake. I, you were saying yeah. misuse. No, yeah, sorry. Yeah. no, no, it's okay. It's it, but I think that um, I'm not sure exactly how we resolve the, the terminology. Although now I want to, but one thing I would say about it is that it's. Um, it's like when you see a glitch and the world kind of opens up for you, essentially you kind of get an understanding of the structure at play kind of underneath the kind of beyond the veil. And I think that that kind of critical awareness um, is possible through misuse. So it's, it's more of a, it's a kind of tactic. Hmm. Um, And I think it's an important tactic to remain engaged in a world that continues to attempt it, to anticipate everything we need. Um, and I think that um, that's our tactic, and I, I think we're going to kind of continue to use it. I, I also want to just—it's a little off topic, but the note—the thing you said about from scratch is really important uh, because when I uh, teach code, um, one thing I really emphasize is that code really doesn't begin with technique or with uh, a software; it begins with ideas, fundamental concepts on how code is constructed, and the tendencies and biases that code introduce. So I don't think all architects need to be coders, but I think that they need to become code generalists mm-hmm. in the sense that they kind of understand all the things that are underwriting <laughs> the softwares that we use and the kind of world around us. And I think that awareness is growing, but these projects of misuse actually start to crack things open and let people kind of see behind the veil, reveal the assumptions we're making, because we're making more and more, because yeah. more and more of them are automated. Yeah. Interesting. Well, we're almost out of time. Um, I just want to say that you guys, uh, if, if you're in Chicago, you can check out um, um, another Campo Marzio uh, at the Night Gallery uh, here in Morgan Street in, in Bridgeport for uh, the next couple of weeks. Um, I, do you guys have a, a last word? Uh, maybe, maybe Ashley, you can take us out with something. Uh, <laughs> what can we ex- What can we expect? Um, um, further exploration? Um, anything yeah. else we you think we missed? Uh, no, I would just say that, yes, we're, we're going to continue this project and other projects similar. Um, and we would also like to have a, just a quick shout out to the night gallery for hosting us. Um, Oliver Popovich, who was a, a student coder of ours who really helped on this project. We'd just like to thank him as well. And then, um, thank you for having us on the show. We've had such a wonderful discussion. Yeah. Thank you. I think this was fantastic and, um, look forward to, uh, 
uh, chatting more, and I'm sure we'll be hearing more of your voices um, uh, on the radio at some point. Um, so thanks, y'all. Um, Jamie, take us to break. Welcome back to Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and uh, we are joined, as we are every month, by Anne Louie and Craig Reschke of Future Firm. How are y'all doing? Good. Hey. Great. Thanks for having us back. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Um, so we've got questions about architecture, as always. Uh, I know producer Jamie will have a question in a few minutes here. Yeah. But <laughs> let's, uh, let's, let's start with, um, let's see, which one to start with? Okay, so um, I'm, I'm gonna. St- I think I'm gonna start making up like Dear Abby names <laughs> for people. I only have come up with one for one of the questions, but I guess we'll start with that one. Um, and and the answer to those questions seems obvious, um, as maybe many of them do. Um, but will you be safe hiding in a closet in a house fire? Say you're in a room and you can't get out of the house because it is covered by fire. Would you be safe in a closet if the fire happens to get in your room? My closet is made out of polished wood, by the way. Um, and that is asked by Fired Up in Fremont. <laughs> I don't think they're from Fremont. <laughs> but I think in the case of a fire, you should try to get out of the building as quickly as possible, and your closet will not save you. Yeah, yeah. not unless you have some sort of like incredibly fire-rated safe room, and in that case, you still only have a limited time before somebody has to come and put out the fire. Right, and <laughs> closets only save you from monsters, not from fires, and I think that oh. stops at age 12. <laughs> yeah, and well, there's like this thing called fire rating, right? And the storage rooms, in according to most code, do have to be fire rated for one hour, right? But that doesn't apply to a closet in a house. No. Yeah. I mean, I this is a kind of stray thought, but since we, I think, have promptly answered the question, I'm just going to introduce it. I do think like the um, Grenfell Tower fire has kind of rightfully brought n- nerdy issues such as um, combustibility of materials and fire egress and sprinklers and like these kind of things that usually are in the kind of like very into the weeds for right. architects has like rendered visible like not only their politics but like the real life safety issues and the kind of stakes involved with things that um, usually people are, are are probably like kind of fly below the radar. Yeah, no, it's important to bring up, and uh, I'm glad I'm glad you you made it take a serious turn. But it's good, is because <laughs> oh, it's sorry. Im- no, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> we'll pull we'll pull back later. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's fine. But yeah, no, it, you know it is it has been really fascinating in like the last few weeks to see um, you know like debates in major papers about like sprinkler systems right and you have politicians who are talking out their 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 rear ends or, or like what's a I don't know what's the English a good English word the the rear you mean yes for like the boot the trunk you mean like a British English yeah word. I was trying to get oh, like oh. some Br- British slang for uh, oh, yeah, so, so you yeah. asked the Scotsman ta- ta- yeah right yeah. ask the Scotsman <laughs> what the English word is very very good very I'm cruel keeper sorry uh, sorry sorry uh, yeah um, but yeah I think you know it, but it has, it's been interesting to see like you know the Daily Mail like having a debate about sprinkler systems and whether they would have had an effect or not yeah and um, um, you know it's like this is why like this is why hiring an architect is important. And, you know, I think uh, in the context of the, the architecture lobby, like we talk about, you know, why, you know, the race to the bottom for architects fees mm. is, is it's not just an issue for architects. Right. It's very easy to like, you know, I think here here what we talk about in the, in the lobby is like, you know, this kind of like architects, we, we want more money and, and more time to do things. But it really has gotten to the point where, you know, you have people who are asking you to do a job 
job for almost no money and you can't spend the time that you need to spend to mm. guarantee the health, safety and welfare of the public. And, and it's an issue that goes well beyond us. Yeah, I mean, the other day over dinner, the three of us were saying like how, I mean, we all strongly believe that like issues of citizenship, of, of I don't know, like belonging, of, of economy, of, you know, like all these kind of like big stakes actually like resonate at the scale of the wall section. Right. And for like students, I think sometimes like, I don't know, like learning a wall section or learning a detail can seem like such like rote work. But on the other hand, like the, in the case of like these kind of yeah. real tragedies, like uh, we see how how like something as small as a, a cladding detail and it's combustibility rating can have uh, like really uh, kind of tragic effects. Yeah. Can I actually also point out something that was not to code? They only had one central stairwell. And they built 75 other buildings in Britain with just the one central stairwell, which you could never get away with in any major American city that I know of. But when they did that, it was to save approximately around 300,000 pounds. That was the cost of putting in the extra stairwell. Mm. So these decisions, it should be noted, it's not just an architecture decision. It's a political decision in this case because all the buildings, most people don't know this, but most of the buildings in major cities in Britain are owned by councils, which is really the state or organization that you, you live in. So if you live in the city of London, mm. the city of London only gives you a, what's called a, 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 a sharehold mm. on your property. You don't own that property outright. The only way you get a property is if you buy it freehold, which is prohibitively expensive for people. So most people live in buildings that are owned actually by the city of London or the city of St. Andrews in, in my case. And so there are political ramifications to, in this particular instance, to not going along with world accepted standard architecture practice. Mm. And that should be pointed out because these people are elected officials and the elected officials ultimately failed their constituents by saving money and cladding, by not having extra exits, Mm. by, by not doing that. And that's why there is this issue. I mean, it's not just a horrible accident that's happened that's killed 80 people and many more missing. It's a total indictment of a system where the politicians that are said to look over people failed. Mm. Didn't right. do it. Well, I also think that the, um, there's actually been two kind of horrific fires in the past year, the Grenfell Tower and also the ghost ship in Oakland, which I think both kind of bring up interesting um, aspects of the code that I think that architects should uh, kind of talk about and address more specifically. And it's uh, it's an issue of funding um, for a fire like the ghost ship as well, in that the, the cost of hiring an architect and bringing that building up to code was uh, too high for the group of people that lived there. Right. So I think that all of these are like kind of timely topics. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Sorry, that was a serious <laughs> turn for mailbag. Yeah, usually serious turn for mailbag. <laughs> it's okay. I, you know, I'm glad we talked ab- talked about it though, because I mean, it is important, right? And it and it it does, you know, like unfortunately, you, you know, we it does take incidents like this to always insist that the that architecture is always political, right? In in one way or another. Um, but doing architecture is not necessarily doing politics, uh, as, as I'm fond of saying. But like we, you know, this this is exactly the kind of stuff that, you know, the reason why we have a license and the kind of issues that we have to think about all the time. It's like our, it's our social responsibility. Mm. Um, but get out of the closet if there's a fire. Yeah. <laughs> head, head for the window if you have to. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Um, so yeah, I want to make sure that we have enough time to answer all these questions. Um, uh, so I, I'll, I'll ask J- Jamie, you, you had a question for us. 
Well, it's it's not a question so much as an observation, and um, <laughs> I should I should say as as full disclosure, I have hired uh, Ann and Craig <laughs> to do some work uh, on on my house. So. This came up, and it's something that you guys have been talking about for quite a long time in the show, which is why are architects' salaries not more publicly available? Why don't you guys talk about the costs? And the reason is is because – and the reason I want to bring this up is I got a quote from an architect to do some porch drawings. I'm not going to name the architect, but – the, but it wasn't us. It was not you. Okay. Which is just, <laughs> and, and, for the record, it was, it was not Ann and Craig. Future firm is handling the work. I want to make that very clear. But – Got a quote from another architect to do it. And the, the fee that he quoted me to do these drawings on this porch that needs to be rebuilt after I had a house fire was $800, mm-hmm. which I immediately said, there's no way you could do drawings that would be, you know, this is a skilled thing you need to do. Porches have to be up to Chicago code. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you should take some time with it. You have to pull some measurements. I, I didn't think anybody could do drawings for $800. That's like the kind of cost you would pay to repaint a kitchen. You know what I mean? And I thought about it from a consumer point of view. Immediately, that person lost kind of all credibility with me. So my question to you guys is, when fees go so low, because you guys have mentioned this, and you guys are kind of, I know your profession's kind of going to the bottom, but the, the, <laughs> other, the other side of we it is- We know too. <laughs> the, the, the consumer side of it says, now, wait a minute, how can, I, how can I have any trust in this or take this seriously if it's not priced according to what I might pay for other goods and services. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and what you guys are doing is important. So that that kind of is my question to you. It's a little shaggy dog, but <laughs> I, I I looked at, you know, when somebody gave me a price quote, I was like, that, that can't possibly be what it would cost. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, I think that the way that some architects are surviving on things like that is, one, they're probably not putting the time to come out and measure for you, right? Then they're putting together a group of kind of standard details that they have for every other porch. And they're kind of letting, they're doing the key key couple drawings that they need to do and figuring that the contractor's going to figure out the rest of it in the field, yeah. which is, it of course... a commodity. It's commoditized. Right. right. Um, which I think is not the way we hope to practice. Mm. Um, but as long as there is another architect out there that is doing that, then clients that aren't as thoughtful about it as you are come to us and they say, oh, okay, I want you to draw a porch and we give them a price and they say, oh right. my God, you're way more expensive than this other guy that's going to do it for 800 bucks. Like, why wouldn't I get the drawings from him? Because the, I think sometimes people not trained in architecture have a, uh, a problem uh, understanding the kind of quality of drawings, I guess. Well, and I, I also, or differentiating quality. Yeah. I think it's also an issue of like who, who the clients are most of the time, right? Because I, I, I think I, I would suspect that um, most people, most homeowners and, 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 and Jamie folks in, in your position who are going to live in a space designed by an architect are like, man, like I want someone to think deeply about this because I'm going to I'm going to live with it. But but most of our clients are developers, right, who don't live in the buildings and who are just who are trying to turn a profit off of this. So, like the quality is is less of a concern and and. For for me, like it's it's the developers that are really the the kind of folks who are driving down the prices and 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 uh, um, you know and and to the detriment of both the end user and the architect, uh, it's this kind of cruel middleman. Well, and I think that there's a a little bit of a I'm thinking about new construction. There's I think people in the new construction market want to go and look at a house, go into it, and then buy it, mm. and they they don't understand that there's another option where they can cut out the developer. They can go and talk to an architect, find a piece of land, and then build something 
probably for the same price that the developer is going to sell it to right. them for. Yeah, and get something of presumably much higher quality or at least thoughtfulness. Yeah. 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 I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think you guys, you've said all the, yeah. it, well, all the significant things. I mean, I think the issue of commodification in the case of yeah. porches specifically is really relevant, though I think we get undercut um, in jobs that are more complicated Yeah, uh, as well. So it's, it's, it's most visible in projects where people can kind of like churn out the same set of drawings, mm. like something on a standard Chicago lot, like probably somebody has something in the drawer. I mean, like, and yeah. we've talked about trying to like, I don't know, subvert that system. But yeah, I, right. I think it's most visible in the case of the porch, but like the kind of way that architects can modify their own work rather than explaining its value, which I'm sure, sure architects, lo architects lobby like talks about much yeah. more cogently than I do, right. is really a problem. Yeah, uh, talking about new construction, this does relate to a question that we have here which is old build is better than modern build, question mark? It seems like houses were more were built more solid in the old days. <laughs> is that true? <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't think that it's true. I think that they were built to a higher quality for less money because labor was presumably cheaper, as were materials, huh. but adjusted for the cost of inflation. I don't know where that would be, um, but I think... Uh, contemporary uh, building can be built to, I, I, I'm okay, I'm thinking like Chicago two flat, a contemporary version of that could be built out of CMU and brick that would be, I think, of the kind of quality that a three white brick wall on a 1920s Chicago two flat would be. Oh, but taking off our architecture hat, like speaking outside the profession, I do feel like I, I know where this person is coming from, which yeah. is like, Within Chicago, you do see a lot of like really detailed craftsmanship on old buildings and kind of like thoughtful details and like built-ins and so on. And if you like maybe aren't an architect, like, I don't know, like you can see the value in that. While we do see a lot of like shoddy new construction, like things that are being rolled out by developers that seem like poorly made and uh, kind of like turned out very quickly. So I can see why like in observation, this yeah. person is asking that because I mean, the Every everything that Craig just said, but then also like we never, we would never live in new construction that wasn't our own work. <laughs> like you know, we would never rent an, an apartment in new construction or, or or like buy a buy a new two flat. Like that, yeah. that's something we would never do. So I I you know like taking off our kind of architect hat for a second, I see I understand the scope of this question. Yeah, but I think that that is again. Like, because you have this middleman, the developer, yeah. kind of sucking value out of a project that doesn't, that isn't really necessary. Well, the developer will tell you that their value is d taking on risk, right? Sure, sure. Yeah. But, I mean, for someone to do their own house, I think there is much less risk. Sure. Yeah. I don't know. What, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think... Um, you live in beautiful old construction. I do live in a, in a beautiful old 100-year-old <laughs> typical Chicago three-flat. Yeah. And it's, it is, it's kind of amazing. I mean, you know, it's, I just think about how much of what we have is, like, literally, like, stickers. Like, you know, like, wood veneer is everywhere in new <laughs> construction. And it's, like, you know, it's, like, literally a giant wood sticker. It's, it's actually wood. <laughs> but, like, you, you, you smooth it onto a thing and, and it's there, right, um, in some instances. But, like, you know, it's, like, glues and sealants and silica. Like, it does, like, have a sort of, like, look and feel of artifice. Like, there's, um, you know, 
and I try not to be like nostalgic about it. Like, you know, it's like, oh, like back to the days when <laughs> things were really put together, right? I'm sure if like they had glue, they'd be like, why are you bothering with a nail? Like throw, like throw, throw some mastic on it and stick it together, right? Like they're just trying to make it probably cheap and easy also. But like, um, you know, I, you do wonder like these sort of brick buildings that get built today, like, you know, you're mentioning it's actually like a concrete block and then some insulation and then an air gap and then and then a single layer of brick, right? A little brick veneer yeah, on top. Yeah, a little yeah. brick veneer. And you do wonder, it's like, what is that going to look like in 100 years, right? Like, and I, and I guess we won't know for like another 60 years, which is kind of interesting, <laughs> mm. you know? But it's like, are you going to start to see like, it might be its own kind of like beautiful ruin when you start to see like a brick wall that's crumbling and you see like the, you know, pink foam behind it like I, I don't know like you know will that seem similarly sort of like I don't know charming um, <laughs> in the future I'm, I'm not sure um, we have recently said that people have bought up all the chic industrial warehouses to turn into artist space so now we have to turn our eyes towards 80s brick doctor's offices which yes. seems like yes. the next chunk of building stock which we have to make cool again <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like we're not quite there yet. You know, it has to be another 20 years before that stuff looks like right. not tacky and actually like thoughtfully vintage. Yeah. But maybe <laughs> and maybe the maybe the question should not be about old or new, but about the the way we start thinking about assembling materials. So right. Kiefer and I were talking about layers the other day. Yeah. And I actually think that the the kind of sign of quality or thoughtfulness or like a, a kind of um, new agenda for materials and architecture is thinking about the way things can be disassembled rather than the way they can be assembled. So mm. how can we think about the the material having a life past its um, current iteration? So like the wood veneer on a cabinet door is probably never going to have another life because when it's damaged, you're going to have to throw it away. But if it was a solid chunk of wood, that cabinet door could be taken off. It could be refinished. It could... Right. go on to be part of something else. Yeah, I think that's smart. And, I, you know, the way that I always think about it, too, is like we're talking about like commoditization and developers and all of this. And like, um, you know, the way that we have to build walls now, like so much of it is out of the architect's hands. Right. And, and you know, be, it's enshrouded in code that you have to build a wall in a very particular way. Mm. Right. Regardless of of how a client wants it or how you want it or how you think it'll work. Um, and there seems like a kind of weird tyranny in that, or at least like it needs to be a process that, that um, everyone should be involved in. Mm. Because right now it is the purview of like some engineers who are, you know, just trying to like save the world some energy. Um, <laughs> and, and so that's great. But it also, you know, is subject to lobbying by, you know, I don't know, big, big insulation. <laughs> is that <laughs> like... like <or laughs> I don't know if that exists. Do they go by that? <laughs> I don't know. We need to find out. This needs to be like a building. Like yeah, a, yeah. we need to have a buildings on air expose on like the big insulation the lobby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whining and dining congressmen to get yeah. more rigid insulation like on the docket for the next Chicago building code. Or exactly. Whatever. But yeah. like I'm sure that actually happens, you know. Yeah. And then it's like, you know, really is this like you know these weird technical parts um, do become very political and and interesting and you know influenced by moneyed interests and like uh, if I can soapbox for a minute with we the people can join the code councils and you know rewrite and redraw them um, you know to make sure that they're serving everyone's interest yes the you need to be a sovereign <laughs> citizen on the code council 
Sorry. Yeah. Uh, it's been an ongoing joke that both Craig and Kiefer are like real nerds and like, um, I don't know, self-righteous nerds about their knowledge of uh, yes. minutia and yes. small text in terms of architecture I, I don't know, regulation. I did find out in my registered energy professional training a couple months ago that the Chicago Department of Buildings does, for the most part, not enforce the energy code. So the, we are adhering into it in all our projects. <laughs> yeah, for yeah. the record, <laughs> yes, yes, you are. <laughs> so if you wanted to be an experimental architect, you could uh, just forego those requirements and try something new. You know, yeah. get a little uh, wiggly about your R values. Yeah. <laughs> yes. See if anyone notices. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. on that note, <laughs> on that note, yeah, um, we've got two minutes left. So I, a uh, friend of the show, Skylar, had asked a question, but I think we'll save it for next month. Um, but uh, what do you, what do you guys think of decorating rooms with mirrors? <laughs> <laughs> All right, go, go for it. <laughs> uh, whatever, whatever floats your boat. Yeah. Sound, sounds great. I've heard that Donald Trump has a conference room that is filled with smoked mirrors, so maybe avoid that. Yes. Oh, a smoke-filled room of mirrors. Yeah, it seems like an appropriate metaphor, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we are running out of time. <laughs> so I think uh, we'll, we'll leave that metaphor to run in folks' imaginations. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, Anne Craig, thanks so much for uh, joining Buildings on Air, uh, as always. You guys can always send in your questions on Twitter to the show's email address, uh, buildingsonair at gmail.com, and we'll answer them live on on the radio. And, Craig, we'll see you guys next month, and um, hopefully, uh, listeners, you can listen in next month. Um, this has been your host, Kiefer Dunn. You're listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM, Lumpin' Radio. Thanks, y'all. This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay and Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at... B-L-D-G-S on air or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.